how often life's tragedies serve as threads sewing together God's plan of redemption. I love thinking about the scriptures in that light. And really life in general. Probably all of us here have, and some are even now, experiencing some devastating or tragic circumstances that seem to be just a waste. We, we're left wondering what on earth is going on, only to find out hours later or months later or years down the road, looking back and seeing God's providential hand of mercy taking care of us. That thread of grace weaving together His glorious plan in our lives. If any of you are there now, things are bleak and despair is overwhelming, it just might be that divine, the divine hand of providence is at work. In fact, I would believe that it absolutely is. I have to believe that. Maybe because, though I'm not always, I, I desperately want to be an optimist. But sometimes I'm not. Um, I don't know if that's the glass, glass half full or half empty. I guess half empty. But I want to be an optimist. But really I believe more than that. I've been convinced by scripture that God is sovereign. That he is just over all things. As R.C. Sproul put it. There's not even one rogue molecule in all the universe. It's all under the plan and power and hand of God. So I have to believe that nothing in life is a waste, even though I don't understand it. And I look around and I have difficulty, just like you, looking at heartache and hurt and wickedness and evil and sorrow and pain, and I don't get it. But I still have to believe nothing in life is a waste. God is the author and giver of life. He called it good, very good in fact. And even though sin has had a profound effect on it, God is a God of order. He is the author, not of confusion, the Bible says. So I want you to remain hopeful, even if you can't see the outcome yet. And even if you don't get to see it in this lifetime, Trust with me that no tragedy will be a waste. No heartache or sorrow will be endured without purpose. At least not for the people of God. We know that, right? Romans 8.28 says that. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, those who are called, the called according to His purpose. And certainly that has been the case throughout redemptive history as you read the Bible from beginning to end. So it has to be the case for us too. It don't just count for Moses and Aaron and Stephen and Saul who became Paul and Philip and all these that we read about. If it's true for them, it has to be true for us as well. And so it is here in this chapter 7 and 8 of the book of Acts. If you're familiar, you found out that we were talking about Stephen if you weren't. But this Stephen, the first martyr of the Christian faith, at least that we're aware of from Scripture. One of the seven Greek-speaking Jews in chapter 6, in fact, who were picked out to be the leaders 
uh, our leaders in a, in a circumstance there in chapter 6 where the women were not, uh, some, some widows were not being properly cared for, so they picked out seven um, diaconi, or we, call, we use that word and translate it deacons, but they were servants. It means to be a servant. And they served this purpose and took care of it and made sure that people were taken care of. Chosen by the apostles as men of good standing, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Godly men. And Stephen was one of those. A strong believer, courageous, devout. Doing all the right things, you might say. Yet he was set up. Lies were concocted against him. He was given, we would have to agree, less than a fair hearing. And so seeing the writing on the wall, you have to back up a little prior to where I was reading to get all this. Seeing that he was done for, he began to preach. And you did read part of that. And it wasn't lightweight TV evangelism preaching. This was hardcore, you stiff-necked and hard of hearing. Just like your father's was there any prophet that your fathers didn't murder and persecute? I mean, it's pretty hardcore. This is not the way to... If Stephen wouldn't have been killed, he wouldn't have built a big giant uh, prosperity church because he, he wasn't preaching feel-good kind of stuff. Stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. And then they began to throw rocks at him. They drug him outside of town humbled him until he was dead. A persecution which began with a stern warning and increased to imprisonment and beatings now escalated to, as I mentioned, the first Christian martyr. And as a result, the church is scattered. Did you notice that? It wasn't just a few people. The Bible tells us that there was great persecution and the church is scattered. And so, if you're reading this maybe for the first time or even You've read it several times. That seems like a great tragedy. Man, this guy that was just doing good, serving the Lord, not hurting anybody, just preaching, loving on people, loving God. He's stoned to death. And so we read, at that time a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. And where have you heard that, those terms together before? Judea and Samaria. Well, Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you read backwards, or even at the end of the Gospels when Jesus is about to ascend back to heaven. And he says these words, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the world. But how's God going to get his disciples out of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost part of the world? Well, he's going to use a murdered martyr named Stephen, set things in upheaval even more, scatter his followers throughout the regions. So basically, it's proper to say he uses the world, he uses tragedy, he uses the death of one of his saints to get people to where they're supposed to be. That's just the way God oversees his activities. 
And if you keep reading later in chapter 11, we're told this. Now those who were scattered after the persecution arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. And some of them were men of Cyprus and Cyrene, which when they came to Antioch, spake unto the Grecians, preaching the Lord Jesus. So there was an immediate fulfillment, almost, of the Great Commission. I think sometimes we miss this. We think that that everything Jesus said is way out in the future, like now where we are and into the future. But it had immediate fulfillment, and it's still being fulfilled. I mean, almost immediately after Jesus was ascended, and he spoke these words, Stephen is martyred, and the church is scattered. And you know, if you're reading this, you might be thinking that very thing. Well, how's God, if you're reading the Bible for the first time, how's he going to get them out of Jerusalem into Samaria, Judea, and all over the... How's that going to happen? This probably wouldn't be the plan that we would come up with. I'd kill a few of them, persecute them, scatter them. And if you'd have been alive during this time, and you knew Stephen, you would have certainly believed this is bad for the church. What an awful thing to happen. Great tragedy. What a waste of a young life. But again, there is no waste in God's economy. No superfluous events, just building blocks neatly stacked for divine purposes. We look at it, it looks messy, it looks gross, but God is just divinely stacking neatly the building blocks of His divine eternal purpose. And watch how these blocks are stacked here in verse in chapter 8. The second and third mention of this Saul. God had him at the stoning of Stephen for a reason. He was consenting to the death of Stephen, which means he was in favor of it. He wreaked havoc on the church for a reason. Before he was a preacher of the gospel, I love this, he was still helping spread the church and build the church. As an antagonist toward it, as one who hated the Christian movement, as one who was a persecutor, did you read that? Dragging men and women off to be tried all the time. What is he? That looks awful and that looks bad, but what is he doing? God's just using them to build the church. And so those who were scattered went everywhere preaching and evangelizing the word. And they weren't all apostles. Remember, it said everybody left except the apostles. Men like Philip. And people, we don't even know their names, and we won't know them until we're in eternity. Went all over the regions preaching the gospel, planting churches. And so we, we see revival and joy came to Samaria. So what do we learn other than the things I've already mentioned from a great chapter like this? What can we take away from it? I've said this in different ways, but I'm going to say it again and just prolong this point a little bit longer. God uses all of life to accomplish His purposes. All of it. If you belong to the kingdom of God, trying to live in obedience to His commandments, submitting to His word, you will have confidence that you belong to Him. One of our questions a while ago mentioned adoption. We have all these great promises, these things that God does for His children, bringing us into His family, bearing witness with our spirits that we belong to Him. 
causing us to realize if we study the Scriptures, there's nothing that can steal us away from God. And you can also, I believe, know that nothing in your life is a waste. No heartache, no tragedy, no sorrow. Jesus Himself said, Blessed are you when you suffer for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're not a child of God, There is no hope for you and your circumstances and tragedies may be worked out and will be worked out for the good of the kingdom of God, but not for you. There is no hope for those who oppose God. For those who remain in rebellion toward Him, those who refuse to surrender to Him and believe in Jesus for salvation, for His forgiveness of sin that He offers. There is no hope for those outside of Christ. All those who sat by and watched Stephen be stoned and beaten before that. There's never any hope for them apart from believing in Christ. And there's really no no hope that any everlasting good would have ever come to them. And so it is still today in this world, apart from Christ, God is still working out your life for His glory and the good of His people. But you'll never see a benefit apart from Jesus. The only hope of escape is to repent. To look to God, turn to God from your idols and repent of your sin. Because you may be thinking, and a lot of times those who do not know Christ do think this way. Well, I'm not as bad. I'm not that bad. I'm not murdering people. I'm not killing people. I mean, come on. But Jesus said it simply. You're either for me or against me. You don't have to be acting the way all those around you act to be against him. But if you're not for Him, you are against Him. There are only two kingdoms. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. We all come into this world as prisoners of the darkness and of sin, chained to that. But that's why Jesus died. For those of us who put our faith and trust in Him, those chains are broken. And that sin paid for. To turn to God from your idols whatever they might be, and trust Christ to forgive you is your only hope for all eternity. Saul, who was consenting to the death of Stephen, who thought he was doing the right thing, he was very religious and wreaking havoc on the church. He thought he was doing the right thing, but he was lost, hopeless until he met Christ on that road. And he was knocked off of that horse And found himself with the words on his lips, Lord. It's the only way he could address Christ. And it was not until he was following Jesus and could look back on the past that he could write the things that he's written and see what he could see that I am the chief of sinners. It was not until he could look back from the point of salvation that he would see all that other stuff that he had accomplished that he thought was good, he counted that as nothing more than a pile of dung compared to knowing Christ. That's amazing to me that God even used that for his glory. 
See, a lot of times we just think in these terms that I've already mentioned. Well, okay, he's using my heartache and my sorrows. He used a murderous, blasphemous man who enjoyed seeing people persecuted to build his church and then saved him and then made him a preacher. And he looked back and saw all that stuff was for a purpose, but none of it was worth anything compared to knowing Christ. It's just amazing. But once God saved him, what an amazing impact he had on the world and still does. Which brings me to the next point. We never know who God will save and use mightily for his purposes. We never know. Man, this is one that every time I preach this point or something like it, it's, it brings a lot of conviction on me because I have to admit, even as a pastor and a preacher and a Christian for a lot of years, there are times I write people off. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like their political views. I don't like the things they've said. I don't like whatever. And I just assume, no, they're, they're so bad and gone. They're, you know, in my mind, I wouldn't ever say it out loud, but they can't even be saved by God. They're awful. And so I need reminding at this point also, we never know who God would save and use mindly for his purpose. Can you imagine what the people thought about? Well, I know you can tell when you see in Acts after Saul becomes Paul and he's born again, even uh, Ananias is like, oh, I don't really want this guy coming to my house. I've seen what he's done. And you can imagine they had to bring him in slowly. Hey, I know who he was, but it seems that he's been saved and now God is using him for the, for the gospel's sake. We never know who God will save. We ought to always view people as redeemable. Until they're gone from this life, Because we cannot comprehend the saving power of Christ except maybe in our own lives. And those who we see as hopeless causes just might be the next great preacher of the gospel, the great, great next Bible teacher, or the next great husband or father that's going to make a difference in the life at home. And God might raise that child up out of that home and send them to Africa to be a preacher we never know and we shouldn't write people off somebody said God is good at making the world's castaways heaven's captains but he's also capable of making the world's champions into heaven's humble servants sometimes we write off the people that we see as ugly and wicked and nasty and we also write off the people that are very popular and proud and arrogant and good at stuff. And the point is, God can take all those kind of people and change them and make them just what they're supposed to be, all the while using their arrogance, their evil, and their wickedness for His honor and glory. It's just an amazing thought and concept to think about the kingdom of God in that way. He did so with Saul. If you keep reading forward from these chapters, you'll see a lot of the life story of Saul in the power of the gospel that is available to change men and able to change men. So we have to be wise and discerning when we're around people and don't be suckered in or put ourselves necessarily in dangerous positions with people that are evil and wicked. But we also 
must be careful never to think that they're too far gone to be saved. And we must never look at anybody and decide on our own that they're not one of God's elect. We have no idea about that. Our business is preaching and praying and living and loving, being the church and obeying God. God's business is saving, and he's pretty good at it. So we should let him do it. He's going to do it whether we let him or not. We don't let God do anything, but you understand the point. We should just back off and not assume that we know better than God. Which again leads me to this point. The work of the gospel is the responsibility of all the followers of Christ. Not just the preacher. Not just the apostles. I think that's one of the beauties of this story. And and maybe why God even did this. Everybody left except the apostles. So you might would think, well then how's the gospel going to get preached? Man, everybody that left took it with them. Proclaimed the good news. Stephen was not an apostle like Peter and John and the other twelve. Neither was Philip. Philip, another one of those six, uh, one of those men chosen in Acts chapter 6. One of those servants who made sure that those ladies were taken care of, those widows were taken care of, and that the ministry was functioning as it should but they also left from there and went out and preached the gospel. And the church grew as a result. All the church was scattered. And those who went, were scattered, went everywhere preaching and evangelizing, scattering the good news, you might say. So it's not just the work of the apostles. It's not just the work of the elders and leadership in the church. It's the responsibility of all of us to evangelize the world when we have the opportunity. Because we never know while we're at Jerusalem who God's going to raise up out of our church, out of our family that can go to Judea and who can go to Samaria and who can go to the uttermost parts of the world. We may not all get to, but we may get to be a part of it because we're making disciples sending people away. This is why we have to train and prepare. Obviously, even in this stage, these church people were being trained to know the gospel and the scriptures. When they went out, they knew what to do. They knew what to say. So I think it's important that we make ourselves ready to be scattered. I mean, if the Bible is true and we believe it is, then... uh, you know, persecution is not something we're just going to read about overseas. It's going to be in our front door and it's going to be in our face. And who knows? What if we couldn't gather like this? I hope you know enough that you could gather your family and worship at home if necessary. I like this last point that I think is important, that last little verse. How... The gospel work and the gospel itself through God's people by the work of the Spirit diffuses a joy. It just says there in that verse 8, so there was much joy in that city. 
That's what the church is supposed to bring. We don't change our message and we don't hide the truth. It is through the truth and the preaching of the gospel. Even the kind of preaching that Stephen did. The kind of preaching that Jesus did. That's head on and in your face, but the kind that caused people to repentance. And from that repentance and changed lives comes joy. We should be driven, and we ought to pray to be driven to be gospel-saturated people. Yes, because we want to be obedient, but if nothing else, for the joy that it brings. The joy that it brings in our own lives, the joy that it brings in our homes, the joy that it brings with the people to the people around us. Philip had to leave, so he took the gospel with him. It was all part of God's plan. Philip was obedient the best he could be. He preached to the Samaritans. And it seems like perhaps most of the people in that city came to know the Lord, but there was great joy in that city. And that's what the gospel does. Even in dark times and desperate moments, the gospel of Jesus brings hope and comfort and joy. It helps restore the joy that has been stolen by a sinful world. And as we go out and make disciples, as we are here in our worship together, in our church setting, making disciples in the name of Christ and proclaiming the gospel, that's exactly what the Bible says. We are being used by God to diffuse the pleasantness and the blessing and the joy of the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says this, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. We are diffusing joy to the people who see us and hear us. It's like a sweet smelling scent. Like a candle. You know that's it's just something that brings joy. We're also doing the same thing toward the Lord. Second Corinthians chapter two, verse fifteen says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. The NLT translates that verse this way Our lives are a Christ like fragrance rising up to God. You might not see your life that way, but that's the way God has proclaimed it to be. And so I want to encourage you along with me that no matter what, no matter where you've been, no matter how many times you've blown it, hey, there's forgiveness in Christ. As the Bible says, there's more grace. It's time to try to be this. We'll fail at it. But this joy, this Diffuse, diffusion that goes up to God that's a fragrance that the world can sense at least the people of God that are coming in the faith will sense it and they'll recognize it hey we may die for it but we're still called to be it and even those circumstances God will still be glorified and the church will still grow even in places like we read about earlier where the government's trying to stamp it out where the communities are getting worried hey this Christian joy is getting annoying it's everywhere 
Well, that's what lost people say. <laughs> okay, when you've been changed by it, it's not annoying. And you don't want it to disappear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we thank you for the blessing of the gospel and all of us who have been changed by it. God, we recognize the joy that it's brought into our own hearts. It may be even the joy that we've been able to see go to others because of the way you've changed us. Lord, we pray for those around us who do not have this joy, do not know Christ, that you would continue to open their eyes and ears and give them faith to believe. Certainly, if anybody's here this morning who never believed those things, never looked at Christ as the only hope for salvation and for forgiveness, I pray that you have started something in their hearts now, in their minds, that you will complete, that they won't rest until they have put all their faith and trust in Christ. And Lord, we trust you to do that for your people. And we know that you will. And just make this church what you've put it here to be. God, just grow us in a way like these men who left Jerusalem on this day. Who, though they were scattered, they were able to take what they had. Put it everywhere else they went. Like a, like a fire and the embers that get spread by the wind. And everywhere they land, there's a spark that could ignite. And I pray that you would help us to be like that with the gospel. And, in the kingdom of God. We, we trust you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.